Much of the craft of teaching happens outside the classroom as we make plans for how to best facilitate learning in a course. On today's episode, Edward O'Neill joins me to talk about practical instructional design. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I am absolutely thrilled today to be having join me Edward O'Neill, and he is a senior instructional designer at Yale. But I think even more than that, how I feel like I've come to know him is through his podcast, which is called the Teach Better Podcast. And if you have not taken a listen to that, I'd highly recommend it. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and Edward, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Edward, I was so happy that you accepted me on LinkedIn because I feel like I got to know even more about you than sometimes our bios show us. You had a fairly eclectic background. Would you start out talking about your early research and early study in academia and then kind of catch us up with what you do today? I, I sometimes say I'm the world's oldest living liberal arts student. You know, like I know a little bit about a lot of things. So as an undergraduate, uh, you know, I wanted to act and things like that. And so I studied theater and literature and with kind of a focus in psychology, which turned out to be useful. And then for graduate school, I went to film school and got a PhD in film and media studies. Really, I just loved old movies. I loved old black and white movies. And so that was a ball. And I found that I really loved teaching too, like the theater training kind of came back, the performing aspect of teaching as opposed to, you know, the facilitating aspect of teaching. And um, I was fun. I was successful. Students, uh, students liked me. And, you know, I was good at that, you know, what we now call stage on the stage kind of role. So I taught for 10 years and wrote and published the most obscure, the most obscure film and media study stuff you could imagine. And, and so, you know, six people thought my work was very good. And, uh, you know, as I did it, I was also teaching what used to be called new media. Mm-hmm. You know, which now is, you know, 1.0, New Media 1.0, and around to 2 or 3.0. And, you know, I taught students to take photographs and edit videos and make web pages and stuff like this, all in a, like a liberal arts context or sometimes a professional media making context. And as I went along, I just kept thinking, can't I spend more time planning the teaching and playing with the toys? Like, do I really have to? Do I really have to now stand and deliver information and grade papers? Mm-hmm. And so I transitioned away from teaching. I spent a year making videos for people and doing web writing. And I had a really funny job. There was a company that would send you, you could sign up to get information as a text message on your cell phone. And they had weather and news. And there was one of uh, movie reviews. And it was all local. So I lived in San Francisco, and so I wrote like 130-character movie reviews oh, wow. that would come to you on your phone, and there were things that were playing at specific theaters. So the first thing would say something about the movie, and then there had to be enough space for like 
you know, one for more, hit one for more or apply one for more. And then there'd be a little, a little more summary. And then if you said, you know, one for location or one for info, then you would get the actual, like the place where it was, it was showing. So I was actually kind of writing tweets before there was a Twitter. I was like writing whole movie reviews and like three, like SMS messages. That was a crazy job. It was really, really fun. It sounds uh, like a I, fun thing. And, and so early, like you said, to be crafting that, honing that skill of micro writing. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show today, especially because you and Doug, Doug is the other co-host of the Teach Better podcast, and you do a little bit different format. It's similar to this one, but there's two of you who are interviewing another person, and you have decided at least so far to have those be all professors from the Yale community. And I sometimes find myself, you, you just described yourself like a nail on the head you know a lot about a little bit about a lot of things and it reminded me actually yeah. of a song that diana crawl i know she's not the first one to have sung that but i know a little bit about a lot of things but i don't know enough about you that's kind of that's how i feel about you when you're i'm so glad someone finally recognized it when you're on the episodes i always want to go i want him to talk more so it's so fun to get to i get to ask you whatever i want and and we're not going to have to make sure that doug and whoever our other guest is feels included so this is a fun opportunity for me well i wanted to to first off so you're doing instructional design at yale and you say in your linkedin profile that a lot of times what your consulting clients need are a couple of things there's one is intuitively appealing ways of conceptualizing the learning process. And then the second one is a survey of the relevant tools and which ones are best going to fit their needs and capabilities, or sorry, capacities. And I thought that was just a really nice way of honing in on what a lot of people do need someone like you to help them do. And you have a special skill that you've identified, which is finding the points in the learning process where assessment and evaluation can be woven in seamlessly. Anytime the the subject of assessment or evaluation comes up, it doesn't tend to draw a lot of people going, yes, let's talk about this for hours. <laughs> it's kind of thought of as a headache. And I really appreciate and, and can see that gift in your being able to help people do that more seamlessly. Before we talk about some of your successes and the tools that you would recommend, let's start out with failures. And I'd, I'd love to hear how you, or maybe actually, I don't even know it's a failure. Um, I'd love to hear how you designed your early courses before you had more expertise in instructional design. What, were, what was the way that you used to approach designing those early first courses that you were teaching? Oh, those were failures. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, what happened in those courses was I made sure, most importantly, I made sure students had to do something every week. And in an online course, you can't just say, go read some books and we'll chat a little and now write a long paper. I really knew from the beginning that they had to do it very incrementally a little bit at a time, that was right. I, I decided that you needed consistent deadlines 100% of the time. Anytime there's a Monday holiday, I had to send out a big announcement. And some of the things I did right, Monday morning the students get a message saying, hey, uh, have you ever seen those old crazy black and white horror movies? Did you know that style really came from Germany and some of the people who shot them actually came from Germany? And like, we're going to look at some really intense, you know, scary, weird horror movies. Not gory, but atmospheric. Uh, you know, getting them interested in the subject and then reminding them 
there's something to discuss on Wednesday and again on Friday, you have an assignment to do over the weekend and blah, blah, blah. And so I got a lot of the cycle and communication things right. But mm-hmm. um, the one thing I really got wrong was I thought we would do a different concept each week. And they would try and learn that one concept and then I would give them feedback and then we'd move on to a new concept. But like if they didn't follow the instructions, there was no second chance. I, I couldn't tell if they had learned or not. There was no second chance. And this, I was so foolish. You don't learn anything by doing it once. <laughs> Maybe sticking your hand in a roaring fire would be like really like, whoa, won't do that again. But most things, it's, uh, it's practice. It's, there's a lot of repetition. And so I think my failure was thinking that you could constantly say, now let's do something different, now let's do something different, now let's do something different. And what I learned how to do was start them on something that would come back again a few times slightly differently. And every time it comes back, you, you would say, now last week we did it this way, and this week I want you to do it this way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and the, the new part I'd like highlight in pink or something like that. So anytime you had repetitive information, I'd highlight the new information. And I just kind of found my way, luckily, eventually towards a way of designing online classes that was, that was really, really effective because people had more than one bite at the apple. You saw things, again, from slightly different angles. I think it probably helped students build a more robust mental model. The stakes on all the things were low, and they really internalized, they really internalized the concepts. But boy, it was humiliating when you look and say, gee, why are they not learning this? material. And I do a whole workshop where I have a whole presentation on how I failed to change these things because I didn't want to accept the responsibility and I wanted to see it as the student's fault. And it was, it's, it's so hard to get out of that. It's I, what I'm hearing from you too, is though still even back then that natural, at least you were measuring to see that the learning wasn't happening. <laughs> so I think there would be compounding that issue of you failing in those ways would be if you hadn't ever noticed that you were failing in those ways. If you didn't have to worry about potentially bruising egos or giving unsolicited advice, if you could just say it like it is, what are two or three of the biggest things that the faculty that you see today are doing that are holding them back from being as effective teachers as they could be? I think professors know their contents and they think of what they're offering as a great big mountain of content, which they've mastered, you know, to this amazing extent. And they don't realize that, you know, part of expertise is, it's like Tetris, you know, like when you do it beautifully and all the pieces are little fall down and there's no gaps or anything. Or like one of those little wooden puzzles. It's kind of like a cube, but when you slide it this way and that way, the little pieces fall out and you end up with these little like Lincoln loggy kind of sticks. And Mm -hmm. there's actually a way of like making a cube out of them, which I could never do those things, I'll tell you. But um, their knowledge is like that. They learned all this different stuff and it's fit together in the tightest space. It's just all knit together and it's all the individual pieces and then it's kind of like patterns and and patterns inside of patterns and, you know, finally it makes this cube. And so, you know, professors don't realize how tightly packed their knowledge is and tightly organized. And when I go to a class and see a professor, they'll they'll, they'll give the big idea 
and then I'll mention this tiny detail here, and then I'll mention this tiny detail over there, and then they'll mention something about what's happening next week, and then they'll go back to the big picture. And I can see what's happening because I'm not in the class. But the students, their, their knowledge is not organized that way. It's, it's just little pebbles. They're still piling in the little toothpick twigs that will eventually, if they stick with it, become the, the Lincoln logs that form the, the cube. And so if, if I had to speak to the professor and say one big thing, I, I'd just say they're not going to get it all. They're not going to get all the content. And it's really not about the content. You, you have to help them learn. You have to help them go through a process to get from where they are to the next step. I have a blog post about um, like the five stages of teaching, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, like the five stages of death. Yeah. You know, and and the first stage is I'll just tell them all the wonderful things I know, and they'll be so fascinated because I love this stuff. So of course they will love this stuff. And, you know, you get, you see board faces and you get back the exam and it's, it's the stuff you said, but it's, it's all disarranged. It's, it's like a funhouse mirror version of yourself. And, um, I mean, when that first happened to me, I read these midterms and like, well, I kind of said this sentence, but it didn't mean what the person thinks it meant. And then I realized, oh, they're a different person. Mm -hmm. And that had different experiences. <laughs> so when I say it, that's what it means to me. I need to find out what their experiences are so I can bring them one step in this direction. That's, that's, that's all. So, you know, thinking too much about content and not thinking about where the learner is coming from and how they have to build their own knowledge. I mean, I think those are, those are big obstacles we have in, in higher education. The professors are extremely well-intentioned and very knowledgeable. But if you don't a little bit learn to shift your perspective, just doling out the information is, is um, not going to be the most effective thing to do. You know, the, the textbooks that I use, I try to find the least expensive ones that I can while still them being yeah. decent. I try to find some balance there. And I, it's been, you know, it'll, it'll renew every year, but I don't require them to have the latest one as long as it's the last yeah, you know, three or four versions or what have you. And so it had been, I will say, I've been, I've had the same intro to business textbook adopted for probably six years or so. And yeah. I'm, I just, this last semester had realized when I was grading one of the tests, I thought these answers are really bad, but they're bad all over the place. Like unless they all shared, mm. you know, study notes for the exam, which there would be nothing wrong with that, of course, uh, if they were studying together. But I yeah. thought it just didn't, it didn't seem like that was what was happening here. And I'd open up the textbook and sure enough, they were just copying in their memorized in their mind, <laughs> some definition from the book. And it was horrible. So I thought that's what I'm working on yeah. now is going back and unpacking yeah. some of that and saying, well, you, you have to do the reading again even though you already know it, but just to try to find where they've just done a bad job giving definitions so you can fill in some of those gaps there. But yeah, that's, it is that, that knowledge that you're describing where it's so easy for us when we have more expertise to do that recall and see all those connections. In fact, there's a prior guest that I had on the show, Peter Newberry, who's uh, teaches phys physics at UCSD. And he talked about that same thing where an expert in physics is going to have all that stuff mapped out and someone doing it for the first time has to really work hard just to recall 
the specific information that they're being asked, but they don't understand all the other connections. So it's slower, but it's also, it's almost like going back to those early internet connections where, you know, it took us four hours to download a picture. (laughs) It's just, it's just a whole different process. (laughs) That's a really good analogy. (laughs) But uh, taking that long, people that wouldn't understand it, but, um, so there's a nice distinction in the learning science discussion, and I, I hope I get this right. Um, there's rehearsal and there's elaboration. So when you repeat, you have the vocab cards for your language class, the little flashcards, and you practice, you're just rehearsing. You're trying to repeat the same thing and you're stuffing it into memory. So you might have a flashcard that says maison on one side and house on the other. Elaboration is where you, you kind of talk about the subject and kind of talk around it. Well, maison could be a family, and that suggests the family lives in a house, and a, a maison is not the unique, which is, we say hotel, but it, it can mean something slightly different or the older meanings of it. And so, so elaboration seems to be much better for learning. You're connecting, you're building that network, you're connecting the new information to the old information. So when I taught online, uh, the thing I found was that they would read about something like, well, early cinema had monopolistic practices. People patented the technologies and they wouldn't let anybody else. They claimed that you can't use a movie camera because we invented it and everybody kind of claimed some version of that. So I would have them talk about monopolies and I would look at it and it's just a mess because everyone was saying, talking about something different. So, and they didn't understand the reading because they didn't understand the word monopoly. So I made it. So the first thing was, what is a monopoly? What's the dictionary's definition and what is it to you? Is Microsoft a monopoly? Is Mac a monopoly? Is, you know, is Google a monopoly? And is that a good or a bad thing? And so I made them talk about their own experiences. I made them look at dictionary definitions. I made them construe their own definitions. I made them reply to each other, et cetera. And then I said, now, reading a book in early cinema, you know, and they asked a question about uh, monopolistic practices. I've forgotten what the question would, would be. But they had, they had elaborated. How is the monopoly that monopolistic practices they had in the teens in the film industry similar or different mm. than what's going on now? So then they had to compare. Well, I think a monopoly is this, but they're saying it's, it's that. And everybody could see slightly different things, so it kind of wasn't one right answer. So I made them do a lot of elaboration and, and comparing so that even if they didn't, it's almost the opposite of repeating the definition from the book. It's like, well, it's a standard definition, but, you know, it could apply to this and it could apply to that. And, um, and that was much more effective because, you know, getting them out of memorization mode, I mean, they stuff it in, the words, but they don't think about the meanings. I like that distinction between rehearsal and elaboration. It does certainly resonate with me as a tension I'm often feeling in the introductory courses that I teach. One of the things that you talk about being particularly adept at doing is having methods for incorporating assessment and evaluation into the design of courses. What are some of the things that we often do that miss that opportunity to get that assessment and evaluation in there without driving ourselves crazy and doing more more tracking than we need to, or more tracking than mm. will provide the value that we're looking for. I think the, the most annoying thing is when you feel like you have to administer a survey after the class is done or something like this. 
it's extra work for everybody. The information probably isn't that good. Volley response rate D, things like this. So with an assessment, I like to I like to pull apart uh, grading, the two parts of grading. One is evaluating, or we would say assessing. That is saying how much the person learned, uh, summative assessments. And the other is reward. If I get an A, I, it's a reward. If I get a D, it's, it's, a, it's a punishment. So a lot of times I recommend to professors that they have some assignments where the students are, say, elaborating, and you just want to see them processing the information and talking and thinking about it. You don't want to have to grade it. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work to grade things. You don't, you're not sure what the standards would be. Just give them points. You know, just say so much of your, the homeworks, you know, the homeworks, you get an A if you turn it in and you answered all the questions. That's all, you know, on time. That's all. It's only 10% of your grade for all 10 homeworks, but you got 10% A. So oftentimes students say, 10% A? I'm not missing one of those freaking homeworks. Even with like 1% of their grade. No, no, I'm getting that A. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? So then, you know, you get them to do the work and you give them a little reward, and you're not, you may not be grading it. You may have them come to class and look at each other's, or you may look at a bunch of them and say, okay, I didn't mark them individually, but I'm going to show you, you know, when people got number six wrong, this is what they did, they did wrong. So you kind of do it all at once. So separating out the different things that are happening with assessment, using formative assessment to find out what's going on, but you don't, you don't have to grade everything. This is a wonderful message for teachers and professors. Because, you know, usually it's just a stack of things you have to grade, and the more work you assign, the more you have to grade. And so that's, that's one, you know, one big plus. The other is to evaluate yourself by using the work that's graded. So if, you know, at the end of the course, there are 10 things you wanted them to get, you should be able to line up the assignments with those 10 things and then look at the grades and be able to say, wow, item number six people did terribly on, you know, assignment number six. I clearly am not teaching that very well. So I'm going to really have to rethink about um, how to teach that. And that can go down to exam questions that each topic corresponds to kind of an exam question. So that, and then when you graded the exams, you look at the overall performance on each question and on the, the item that has the lowest, you know, median score, that's their assessment is your evaluation. That is when you when you assess what their performance is, that's a, an indicator of, of what worked and, and what didn't. So you at least know where to focus. You can at least say, that's the topic that I I could do much better on. And is that something that you also would recommend being transparent with the students, that that's what that's being used for, so they can see that you're willing to put some of your own skin in the game? That's a great idea. Um, I, what, what I oftentimes recommend is on it, if you structure what you want them to learn, there are certain things that... So if you, you get to the student's final paper, final exam, and you look at it, and every professor knows there's things that if you see on there that will make you cry and bang your head against the wall. A and those are competency level tasks. Those are things where 
how could you get out of week two of my course and not be able to answer this question? If you look at that and you feel sick to your stomach and you want to cry, that's a competency question. Absolutely everyone should get it by the end. But the hardest questions are kind of mastery level questions. And you probably shouldn't have many of them because only 20% of people are going to get them right because they're the most complex. And then the other things are in the middle. Do they know about this body of literature? Do, you know, do they know about this booking, bookkeeping technique? Do they know about this kind of problem to solve? And those could be quite discreet. So if you organize your exam, so it's like basic, intermediate, advanced. You know, there's three questions at the beginning. They're super basic. Don't overthink them. I just want to make sure everyone knows this stuff. That's, it's just I'm checking myself. The other things are intermediate. We had five topics in the middle. They're not complex. Each one is on a separate topic. Again, don't overthink it. This is about topic A. This is about topic B. I'm trying to see what you learned, and I'm trying to see what I didn't, what I did and didn't teach effectively. And then there's last. There's two questions. You get to pick one. Those are hard questions. You have to really think to figure those out right. Spend a bunch of time on that. Don't half-ass it. So, yeah, I... Transparency, I think, is one of the most important things in teaching. So you can combine that with, you know, their it's their assessment, it's your evaluation. And, and I think that's a great strategy. And I know people have told me, you know, I, I put some really basic questions on the exam, and, like, a lot of students got them wrong, and I just, you know, it just kills me. And I'm like, yeah, they, they didn't get it. I'm going to have to find this graphic that I'll put in the show notes for people to look at. That's from some research from Harvard about motivation, which you and I were chatting a bit about our dissertations before we pressed record. And this one's in my dissertation if anyone wants to read it. But I think okay. there's probably better things that I've written <laughs> since my dissertation. We were both talking about getting our dissertations done. And that, that was the most important thing. But at any rate, it's this diagram sure. that that is around motivation that if I don't feel challenged at all, I'm not going to be particularly yeah. motivated. But if I feel too challenged, that's also going to really drop down my motivation. So wanting to construct things in such a way that there's not all this pressure to perform, that there's such high stakes in this. And at the same time, yeah. if there's completely low stakes and there's nothing in it, right. it it's really hard to get their, their uh, effort going in those cases. So I, I like the way that you're proposing this, this, this this design for assessment. Yeah, thank you. Some I think professor I talked to said um, that when they do active learning in the classroom, one of the hardest things for them to uh, figure out at the beginning, something that just took them, you know, blindsided them, was how long do you give the students to talk about something? And a very clever response is that you can give them a one-minute problem, a five-minute problem, and a 15-minute problem because they're very different, and they would approach them differently. So you give them a problem. Say, I'm going to give you one minute to talk about this. Broad strokes, first impression, what does your gut tell you? What do you think in general? You're not going to be able to find the answer. I don't want the answer. I want you to tell me what does the answer look like prediction-wise and why. And then maybe the next thing is, now I want you to spend five minutes talking with your neighbor about how to set up the problem. Can you come to an agreement about there are different ways to set it up? How would you set it up? And then finally, we'll spend 15 minutes where I want you to be actually solving the problem and we'll come around and help you once we're sure that people have set it up in useful or interesting ways. So it's almost like you can do that adjustment of difficulty and let the students know, okay, this is 
don't spend a lot of time on this, think quick, and kind of, uh, you know, grade things up from there. I think there's a graphic about these kind of challenge motivation things that it puts slow, you know, with the sick man to Haley. Nice. I I never know how to pronounce it. (laughs) You're going to do better than I can ever do. (laughs) It's like a pinwheel and it's kind of like, I've forgotten what the dimensions are. One is harder, it's harder, easier, and there's kind of something else. And it kind of like is, uh, maybe it's the stakes. If it's easy and low stakes, you're bored. It's kind of like boredom on one end, and then at the other end is like, you know, steam coming out your ears and, you know, total emotional breakdown, stress. And and somewhere in another zone, it's like, hey, this is hard, but I've got the hang of it, and the stakes are too high, and I'm having a great time. I think that stuff is really, really helpful for, for teaching. One of the things you were talking about earlier reminded me of a post that I wrote that I'll link to in the show notes, and that is about using the iPad game that the Ellen Show came up with. It's called Heads Up. And essentially, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the game catchphrase some people might be familiar with where you have your iPad. You do look ridiculous, by the way, people walking by the classroom seeing you do this, but holding the iPad above your head and it has a word on it. It's one of the vocabulary words you're trying to get them, in this case, to be able to elaborate on, although yeah. at the early stages, they're just at rehearsal stage. But they they try to describe that word to get me to say it. And then as soon as I do, I I make the iPad, I sort of flip it down like a sign and then flip it back up and it that gives them a point. And if they skip it, I put it back behind my head and then put it back up and that means they don't get points and they pass their turn to the next person. And it's so, I was really thinking about teaching some of the less experienced students in the freshman and sophomore levels mm-hmm. versus playing that game. They'll actually, when they've had me before for the earlier classes, they'll say, hey, can you bring that game in again? Because we really <laughs> like playing that. And they get to where they can beat me at that game. I just, because I'm not as fast as they are. I mean, some of them are just as sharp as could be. And they can, they can oh process God. it so quick. I mean, you know how it is. I'm I'm in my 40s. Now I'm forgetting words. <laughs> it's, I know. It's so know. fun to see that transformation in two ways for me. One is because, yes, of course, the best gift to me would be that they are far better than I ever am at anything. So it's like a compliment when they, yeah. they're moving up in their knowledge and their skills. But then also yeah. that that they have a fond memory of something that they learned from me in a fun way in earlier classes, and now they want to do it. Because sometimes in the That's early amazing. classes, they're, they get shy about it, and it's kind of, oh, we're going to do that silly thing again. And, you know, it, it, but it grows on them. It just takes, it takes some time sometimes. I, had a, I worked with a professor at uh, USC, and he had a version of Jeopardy that he worked with PowerPoint, and, uh, and then it's kind of a touchscreen computer, very, one of the very early touchscreen computers. And um, damn it, the kids love to play Jeopardy. I mean, you know, this is an engineering class, and uh, they just, he would ask, and he would offer them at the end. He says, Do you want to do another problem? Do you want to do this? Do you want to drill concepts of Jeopardy? Oh, oh, Jeopardy. I mean, it was, it was really charming. I, I, that story of using that game, it's so rich. You targeted, it, it's the less experienced students, they need more motivation, they probably need more practice. I I agree with you 100. percent If if you're if you're not finding students who are smarter than you, um, then uh, I don't I don't know. You're the smartest person in the place. I don't. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not I, a danger I'm, for me. I'm smart enough, <laughs> but 
you encounter young people who are just so phenomenally bright. Mm-hmm. And um, it is interesting seeing your your brain, which is, you know, such a rich network of knowledge. And, you know, you did this creative thing of figuring out this game could be used in learning context. That's not a speed thing. You know, that's dexterity. That's not speed or force. Yeah, yeah. There was another fun thing that happened too. I, I was showing in a business ethics class that I taught. It was the first time I taught it at the undergraduate level. And I showed a couple clips from John Oliver's show. I almost get it confused. Mm-hmm. It's not The Daily Show because that's John Stewart. Right, right, right. <laughs> May he rest in peace in a very short time. He's not dying. He keeps yeah. telling us he's not dying. He's just going off the air. And anyway, what is John Oliver's show? Anyway, you you know what I'm talking about. And it's so fun. night next week, yesterday or whatever. I can't remember either. Yeah. This this uh, student would then go on and watch all his prior ones and every week the new ones that were coming out. And he'd come to me and say, did you see this one yet? Did you see this one yet? So it's fun to introduce them to that. And um, get to and the feedback too. Yeah, I mean, no, when I I mean, I've taught media studies, so it was um, easy pickings in a way. You would, at a certain point, I decided, well, what are they watching? I can I can show them my favorite things. And I had everybody has to do one presentation, and you bring in a clip of under two minutes and talk about it in the context of the class. Well, we saw a lot of Family Guy because <laughs> they just love Family Guy. The more <laughs> vulgar, the better. But um, people brought in things I'd never heard of that were so on point. It's you stepping away from the center and letting and helping them communicate with each other. And um, yeah, I know it's it's great that you inspired the person to. To explore further, and then it just like it fed back into the class. Like that's that's just the way we hope it will work. It's the best thing. Well, on the the last episode, and by the way, this is the point in the show where we do recommendations. And on the last episode, if people listened to it, which just aired yesterday, so <laughs> you don't, Edward, you don't have to have listened yet. <laughs> but I talked I a little <laughs> talked a little bit about fears in my teaching and some of the things that I do to try to resolve those fears because it's kind of I had just my first teaching nightmare for the fall semester starting <laughs> and I've oh talked I've talked to a professor who works at our institution who's been there 20 years and he says I hate to tell you but they don't go away it's just kind of a normal part of the year but mm-hmm. I forgot to read this quote so that's going to be my recommendation is just for us to revisit Parker Palmer's words and this quote mm-hmm. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes I'll, I'll put it in there but it's also on the teaching in higher ed Facebook page so if people listening are on the Facebook page, you'll also have seen it there. And it's just my favorite quote about teaching. And Edward, as you and I were talking, I hadn't planned yet what I was going to recommend for the episode, but it's just reminding me of the passion for teaching. And a lot of it is in this quote. He writes, I am a teacher at heart. And there are moments in the classroom when I can hardly hold the joy. When my students and I discover uncharted territory to explore, when the pathway out of a thicket opens up before us, when our experience is illuminated by the lightning, life of the mind, then teaching is the finest work I know. There's a special privilege in people letting you help them grow and change. You're there at a special moment, especially in young people's lives, when they are seeing things for the first time. You get to see someone discover something that is familiar to you, but I mean, I think that captures something of the kind of sacredness of teaching. What is your recommendation for the listeners today? I've been getting back to the work of Carl Rogers, the kind of founder of humanistic psychology. And 
he pioneered kind of non-directive, non-directive psychotherapy instead of telling the person what was wrong with them. Rogers decided that if you just listen to someone and try to understand them, or essentially were a good listener of a certain kind, that they would discover themselves through your non-judgmental acceptance and valuing them as a human being. You don't, you listen, you try to understand, you don't judge, and you, you try and really do it as yourself. You're not just there as kind of a technical professional, you're a human being. And it turned out that a lot of research that ensued showed that when, when therapists and counselors listen and are less judgmental, et cetera, that a process of growth kind of naturally unfolds. So Carl Rogers has a book called On Becoming a Person. It's kind of some of his basic writings. And if you read it, you might find, well, I think this is terribly touchy-feely. But, uh, but he does go on to show the research behind what he's talking about, some of which I think would even be cutting edge today. And he has some things in there uh, about learning. I mean, because he sees therapy as, as learning and, in a sense, kind of learning to be yourself. And so it's been very inspiring for me to go back to Carl Rogers and think about how the teacher, as a teacher, I have to have to try and understand you as a unique learner and I have to value something about you. I, I Even if I tell you, yeah, you got that one wrong, but I appreciate that you, I think you're going in the right direction. Um, and if I really try and understand you and, and find what you're doing is valuable uh, and try and help you grow yourself, then it's not so much about information transfer and uh, and it's a more kind of humane kind of relationship. I want to thank you, Edward, for being on the episode and, and especially for your continued work on the Teach Better podcast. It's so much fun to listen each time you produce an episode. And sometimes I get a little hint from Doug what the next episode's going to be. And I want to say, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, because I can't wait to, to get to learn from another expert in teaching. That's great. I actually, you know, I'll, I'll edit them and then it'll be a while before they come out. And oh, I, mean, I want to tell people about this. There's such cool stuff in there. I mean, you know, when, when you're passionate about teaching and you focus on it and you try and improve, you do. And uh, I, I feel like my education is talking to, talking to people who do this well, like you. And, and uh, I'm just learning more every day. Well, thanks again for joining us on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Edward O'Neill for joining me on episode 60 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. If you'd like to comment on the show notes or give us any additions to our talks today, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 60. As always, if you have suggestions for the show in general, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly updates, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. And I'll see you on the next episode.